Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke for y'all. Why can't a bicycle stand up on its own? Because it's too tired. Oh my god, I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the audio culture magazine that gives you everything you need to prepare for weekend conversations. Yes, you just got a quote joke from Will Toledo of the band Car Seat Headrest. That'll help break the ice. They've got a new album, and we'll hear more from him later. Plus, we'll speak with master thespian Sir Ian McKellen about Sherlock Holmes, Gandalf, and Dame Judi Dench. She's a very naughty Naughty, naughty girl. Somehow doesn't surprise me, you know. Kind of makes sense. It does. Uh, and if this all sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired in December. So cast your mind back to a time of mulled wine and toques. Uh-huh. When, as at any party, we started with small talk. We are here speaking with Anne Friedman. She's a freelance writer and also co-host of the lovely podcast, Call Your Girlfriend. Anne, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this weekend? I'm going to be talking about pigeons that can identify cancer. Whoa. I know. I'm going to feed them now. (laughs) No longer just a nuisance on city streets. Apparently, scientists did a study where they put a bunch of pigeons in a room and had them look at blown up images of biopsies and the like Mm. and peck one button if it was malignant and peck another button if it was benign. And they successfully pulled it off? They did. So they were trained. They had some pellets to incentivize them, some tasty, tasty pellets. Okay. Mm. And their accuracy rate was something astonishing. It was like 86%. And then when they did some kind of like flock average where they like they did it with a whole bunch of pigeons, that was like 99% accuracy. So wait, hold on a second. Why train pigeons to do this? Yeah. I mean, are they do they have especially good eyesight or something? Are they good at detecting things visually? So apparently our eyesight functionality is not all that different than birds. And mm. if you got hawks or or some seriously dangerous birds of prey that can like see a mouse when they're flying, you know, many, many feet oh, in the yeah. air, they would be even better. But it's like you don't even need them to be that much better because the pigeons are already pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but is the goal what's the goal here to replace doctors with pigeons? Well clearly clearly someone just really likes to hang with pigeons because why would you even attempt this? Like it seems ridiculous. Like yes, I'd like to herd some pigeons and try something that modern medicine already does like with an okay rate of accuracy. (laughs) But it turns out that they're about as good as our sort of existing conventional methods, which is also kind of shocking that they're as good. Yeah. And you can pay them in stale bread. (laughs) (laughs) It's cheap. I believe each reading is tuppence a bag, right? Oh, my God. (laughs) Anne Friedman, (laughs) thank you so much for the small talk today. My pleasure, I think. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then have a bartender capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. It's our critically acclaimed history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This month, back in 1997, way back, the world got another reason to encourage kids to turn off the TV. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Concerned parents, you're right. Cartoons really can be bad for you. Pokemon, get the back! Case in point, Electric Soldier Parigon, an episode of the hit Japanese cartoon Pokemon based on the Nintendo video game. If you've met a child in the last 20 years or so, they've probably told you all about Pokemon. But if not, all you really need to know is in 1997, 4 million kids watched the show in Japan alone. Which is where the Electric Soldier Parigon episode aired. The storyline was typical, something about traveling through cyberspace. 
But then, 20 minutes in, came a scene where the show's blobby yellow hero blew up some missiles. Suddenly, doctors around Japan fielded thousands of calls from frantic parents. Their children were getting nauseous, or passing out, or in some cases, suffering epileptic seizures. Within half an hour, close to 700 Pokemon fans wound up in hospitals. The cause? Paka Paka, an animation technique where the colors red and blue flicker on screen, strobe style, to simulate an explosion. When TV news aired the offending segment later, more people suffered seizures. Media around the world called it Pokemon Shock. The scandal also shocked Nintendo, especially the next day when its stock took a nosedive. Pokemon went off the air for four months, while doctors and politicians drew up new rules for cartoons, including how fast Paka Paka colors are allowed to flicker. As for Electric Soldier Paragon, the episode never aired again, even with the seizure-inducing scene edited out. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I am speaking with Nilton Venegas at Fugu Izakaya and Bar in downtown Los Angeles in the little Tokyo district, of course. Uh, Nilton, you heard the story. What drink did that inspire? You know, the whole uh, weird anomaly of the episode. I mean, it's just as strange and exciting maybe as my cocktail will be. But we'll, we'll see. <laughs> Better be a really bizarre cocktail. Yeah, well, hopefully no, no seizures will come about drinking this cocktail, but it'll Give you a nice little uh, head change, at least. A buzz, as most do. All right, so you're putting ice in a shaker. What is this called, by the way? Oh, so we're going to call this the Porygon cocktail. The Porygon, of course. Porygon cocktail. The flashing lights of the episode were blue and red. And we'll see how that looks in a cocktail in a minute. Oh, so it's going to be a multicolored it's cocktail? Gonna, yes, it's going to be very multicolored, for sure. <laughs> what we're going to do is grab Bombay Sapphire East. Bombay Sapphire East. This very nice gin is actually infused with a lot of Asian types of spices and herbs. And okay. we're going to get uh, a little Campari. Uh, here comes the red, the Campari. Campari. That's, of course, bitter. Let's add a little bit of cherry syrup. So more red. You're making sure this thing is red. <laughs> okay. Now this this is very special. This is called Aladdin. Aladdin user, very nice Japanese uh, sake. And we're going to do a nice little shake in there. Remembering that we're using Campari, we're going to add a little sugar to the rim just to kind of balance it all off. You're pouring it right now, and it is very neon, almost pinkish red kind of color. So and now... Oh, is this blue curacao? It's blue curacao, and it's just for the aesthetics. You are pouring that down a cocktail straw so that the blue settles to the bottom of the drink. So now you have a half and half color, which is blue and red. Oh, that is tasty. Considering how the uh, the bitter element of the Campari in there, this is like nice and sweet, unlike this episode in Japanese history. Cheers. And Brendan, a correction: that restaurant is called Izakaya Fuga, not uh-huh. Fugu. Fugu is the poisonous blowfish that many in Japan consider a delicacy. Yet another potentially dangerous bit of Japanese culture. <laughs> That's right. Fugu and cartoons. All right, Just avoid folks, them. here's something that won't harm you. Signing up for our email newsletter, uh-huh. every issue of which features a cocktail recipe. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org slash newsletter. 
And now the soundtrack in which your favorite or soon-to-be favorite musician DJs your dinner party. And today our guest is Will Toledo of the indie band Car Seat Headrest. The Seattle-based musician got his start recording music in his car, hence the band's name. Ah. He just signed to Matador Records, and he's got a new album called Teens of Style. Here he is with a playlist. This is Will Toledo of Car Seat Headrest, and uh, you're listening to my Dinner Party soundtrack. So when we start out, when we first get to this party, the song that's going to be playing is uh, Cold Turkey by John Lennon. Temperatures rising. I chose this track to be a little witty, uh, add a little food humor to the mix, and then also I want to keep my guests educated on the perils of food storage. The typical interpretation of this song is that it's about heroin withdrawal, but um, I've heard that it is actually inspired by a time when John Lennon got food poisoning from actual cold turkey, and uh, he intentionally wrote it so that it could be interpreted as heroin withdrawal instead. And, you know, that's unconfirmed, but as a musician, that's kind of your job, is to uh, take the indignities of life and make it sound kind of cool. Maybe uh, you're a little paranoid about the turkey you're cooking. You want to take a little longer before you serve dinner. So uh, what I would recommend is you put on anything by William Onyabor, but I would start with the song Body and Soul. William Onyabor is, I believe, a Nigerian musician um, from the 70s. And uh, there's a lot of mystery surrounding him. Um, He didn't really release much personal information. It was just these albums that came out. And they had all this synth stuff on it, which was very new in that region at the time. But there was also a lot of great classic funk going on in his music. He was sort of my conduit into more funky music. From him, I went on to James Brown and Fela Kuti and uh, more mainstream stuff like that. But I, I still like William Onyabor's grooves. He wrote long songs. They don't get in the way of their own their own groove. I think that a dinner party can coast like that for hours if you just uh, let it happen. So finally, dinner is ready, and uh, the song that comes on at my playlist is Road Lines, Parts 1 and 2 by Naked Days. And at my ideal dinner party, Naked Days himself would be uh, probably sitting in a chair somewhere playing this song, as I have seen him do multiple times. Naked Days is a solo act. His name is Degnan Smith. He's been my friend for a very long time. We met in first grade. Road Lines is about traveling in the car somewhere to get to someone important. That relationship is breaking down a little, and that's expressed entirely through these road metaphors. Waiting for the light to 
If I was going to play one of Degnan's tracks, he'd probably make me play one of mine. So in that case, I think I would choose Bad Role Models, Old Idols Exhumed, from my latest album, Teens of Style. Lyrically, it's about sort of being tired of the past and wanting to move on. I think in a dinner party, that would basically translate to... You've eaten my food, now get out of my house. Will Toledo of the band Car Seat Headrest. In the few months since we taped that with him, they recorded another album, Teens of Denial. It came out this month, and they're on tour now. All right, coming up, actor Ian McKellen talks about working with bees, and Cindy Crawford talks about working with snakes. Weird. It's not a dream, it's real. When this encore edition of the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. We should let you know this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired in December. It's a great one. In a few minutes, Cindy Crawford recalls her death-defying life as a supermodel. But first, check out our guest of honor. Yes, it's Sir Ian McKellen. Oh, yes. He's one of the great Shakespearean actors of his generation. Right now, he's earning raves for his starring role in a TV adaptation of the play The Dresser, which debuts Monday on Stars. Mm-hmm. And, of course, geeks the world over know him as the wizard Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, for which he earned one of his two Oscar nominations. That's right. The other was for the indie film Gods and Monsters, directed by Bill Condon, who also directed Ian last year in the film Mr. Holmes. In it, Ian plays an elderly Sherlock Holmes who is now retired and keeping bees as a hobby. He's also trying to solve a final mystery, even as he loses his memory. Here's a clip in which he recalls a clue he discovered. And there it was. A picture. You know, a few years ago, I could have told you everything about the woman in that photograph. Certainly I'd recall what had become of her, whether she was victim or culprit. But that night... I couldn't remember any of it. When we spoke to Sir Ian in December, we mentioned he must have spent his whole life being exposed to others' portrayals of the great detective. Well, it'd be difficult not to. There'd been 130 (laughs) people played Sherlock Holmes before me. I'm just lucky to be playing the real Sherlock Holmes. They they were playing the fictional versions, and that's the conceit of this uh, story, that uh, Sherlock Holmes was an actual real person and is alive after the Second World War, age 93, living in retirement. So I didn't have to worry too much about other people's interpretations because I I was out on my own, really. Were you a fan of the books or uh, or of the movies? What's your relationship? Well, I can't remember a time when I didn't know about them, and I must have read them. They're very readable for kids because most of them are short stories, but... um, I must have seen Basil Rathbone, mustn't I? And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and even on radio, one of my great heroes, John Gielgud, uh, the classical actor, played Sherlock Holmes on radio with um, Orson Welles as Moriarty. Oh, my. Both of them giving disastrously bad performances, <laughs> I thought. But anyway. Really? Is that possible? Uh, I, I think they hadn't had quite enough rehearsal. Oh, I see. Professor Moriarty, good morning to you. Mr. Sherlock Holmes, I believe. How very charmingly you play. 
How kind of you to say so. Hmm. Won't you be seated, Professor Moriarty? Singularly good of you. Thank you. I will sit down. (laughs) Amazing. You play him, Sherlock, at both age 50-something and 90-something. You yourself are, if we may say... In the middle. Yes, you're between them. (laughs) There have been many examples of actors, you know, young Dustin Hoffman I'm thinking of in Little Big Man, playing somebody far older than he is. But you're somebody who, if we may say, has, has lived a little... Do you think you play this role differently now than you might have earlier in your career? Oh, well, I wonder, yes. I mean, I, I, I've often played older than myself. I mean, really older than myself. And uh, I did that at university when I was thinking of becoming a professional actor, and I, I had to stop playing the old parts because I knew that if I was going to make a living at all uh, uh, as a professional actor, it would be, on the whole, playing my own age, So, mm-hmm. which is actually more, more difficult to do because you're not disguised. But, you know, once you've played a 7,000-year-old wizard, um, <laughs> 93 doesn't seem... It's nothing. S- That's right. Almost a toddler. <laughs> yes. I want to ask you about that wizard. You know, this is not some cracking Sherlock mystery yarn. It's It's really a very quiet, realistic drama... And meanwhile, you're arguably best known for playing that wizard Gandalf in these big fantasy CGI blowouts. How do you prepare for a huge special effects movie versus one like this with zero bells and whistles? Well, I think it's exactly the same. I mean, uh, when when Bill said, well, I play Sherlock Holmes, he did say I had to work with bees. I said, well, I can't work with bees. No, I don't like bees. I said, CGI them, put them in later, you know, <laughs> paint, paint them onto the screen. Yeah. He said, no, this is an independent movie, by which he meant a cheap movie. So there was <laughs> yes. no possibility of technology coming to my aid. Uh, now, w- w- if you're playing Gandalf and he's facing off the Balrog, who you never see until the movie is finished, and actually what you're doing is shrieking your head off at a yellow tennis ball on the stand <laughs> in the studio, you feel silly, frankly, but... You just have to imagine that you're where you are. And if you've been on the stage as often as I have in my time, you know, when I stand on the stage and and there's a castle behind me, it's not a real castle. What? (laughs) It's all pretend. (laughs) Acting actually is quite a complicated business, isn't it? Is there there one you prefer, by the way, an indie versus a tentpole film? Uh, um, I mean, it can be fun doing an, an independent movie because it's all so quick. It has to be. You don't have money to luxuriate in take after take after take, so that the tension can be quite high, which can be quite good. But it's always a bit nerve-wracking. There was a, there was a scene in, in Gods and Monsters, a, a crucial scene in which um, my character James Well was telling a, a long story about his past and getting quite emotional about it. And uh, Bill Condon, the director, said to me, it's about 5.45 in the evening, he said, Ian, they're going to pull the plugs in 15 minutes. No more shooting, so you've got 15 minutes to nail this. And the speech was about seven minutes long. So he said, when you get to the end of the speech, don't stop. I'm not going to say cut. Just go back to the beginning and do it all over again. Mm-hmm. So I actually mm-hmm. kept them all waiting until half past six, doing the speech over and over again. But <laughs> it would be rather nice not to have to do that. Yeah. I'd like to ask you about another acting challenge, which is, you know, we mentioned your career interpreting Shakespeare. Among many performances, you acted in a notorious production of Macbeth with Judy Dench. Mm-hmm. And we actually had Kevin Spacey on the program. And he told us that Judy Dench is notorious for corpsing, which is theater speak for cracking up on stage. (laughs) And so we we wonder, is this true? And do you have a good example if it is? She's a very naughty, naughty, (laughs) naughty girl. She she will try and make you laugh. uh, Really? Which is not quite quite corpsing. But Hmm. Judy's acting is a miracle to me. Um, You can't work out when you're working with her how she does it. 
She doesn't mm. ever read a script before she does it. She just arrives on the first day. This is for a play, and hasn't read it, and is sometimes mm. rather alarmed. And, and I, I thought you told me Mother Courage was a decent part. She said after the first reading, <laughs> uh, and so she's rather bewildered at sea, uh, very much on the outside. And then it could be as early as the third day of rehearsal. She suddenly stops being Judy Dench and is the character. Mm. And once that's done, that's done, and she spends a long lot of time in the rehearsal room doing the daily crossword in the newspaper because she needs to get on with life and sometimes uh, acting gets in the way for her which I think is why she likes to have this added spur of let's make sure we all enjoy it um, oh yeah. I see that's why yes, she does we, 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 when we were doing Macbeth one, one day she arrived at a matinee we had done it about 200 times so yeah. sure. we were given a little pink spot and you had to wear that about your person during the matinee performance and the winner of this competition was the one who could identify where the pink spot was on all the other characters. <laughs> While you're delivering Shakespeare. I mean, what a, what a non... Where do you suppose she had hers? She had hers in the lobe of her ears, if it was an earring. <laughs> Damn her. The comic porter put his on the end of his nose. I had mine on the pommel of my sword. Another guy had it on the sole of his shoe. <laughs> but that's the sort of thing she gets up to. Games. She loves games. Sir Ian McKellen, his starring role in the movie Mr. Holmes is generating Oscar buzz. You can find it on DVD and on demand. And stick around because Ian will be back later in the show to answer your etiquette questions and to share a story about Gore Vidal you won't soon forget. It involves Jello. Seriously. And now, time to eavesdrop. Cindy Crawford is one of the most iconic supermodels in fashion history. In her new book, Becoming, she uses images from photo shoots as launch pads for stories about her life and career. Today we overhear her tell us some of the scariest. Hi, this is Cindy Crawford. One of my favorite chapters in the book is about overcoming fears. I'm going to share three of my little stories that are in the book about scary things that I've been asked to do and how I either did it or figured out how not to. I got invited to do a shoot in Bermuda for British Vogue. And it was very exciting. The photographer had me shooting a spa story. So we were shooting in this beautiful spa in Bermuda. And he wanted the shot where I was in a steam room. And they said, OK, put on the swimsuit and go stand in the steam room. And we're going to shoot you from outside the door through the glass. He's clicking away. I'm getting hotter and hotter. Sweat is beating on me, which is what I'm sure they wanted it to look like. My skin's getting red. Now I start getting dizzy. But I'm a young model, so I just keep doing it until finally I remember kind of like knocking on the door as a sign, like, hey, can you let me out now? And I don't know if it was the fact that I was feeling dizzy, but in my memory, the photographer is laughing but not opening the door. I passed out and hit the floor. Then they finally did open the door and drag me out of the steam. Probably not my most glamorous photo shoot ever. But it was a really great lesson for me as an 18-year-old young girl from the Midwest that I had to stick up for myself. When you get the opportunity to shoot with Annie Leibovitz for Vanity Fair, you say yes. I would be photographed as Eve in the garden. And as we all know, part of the Eve story is there's a very large snake. And also Eve is naked, if you recall. So 
There's a big hedge behind me because it's supposed to look like the Garden of Eden. And this snake wrangler comes over with this gigantic python or something, I don't know, like 40 pounds, and handed it to me literally like a boa, like a feather boa behind my shoulders. And I did not move a muscle as the snake kind of settled on me. The thing that no one prepared me for was that this snake, and I'm assuming other snakes, they really stink. And I'm just standing there trying to portray Eve, sensual, serene, beautiful. And at a certain point, my shoulders start getting squeezed together, and the tail of the snake started wandering in private places, (laughs) and I did not want that snake wandering. And I see the snake wrangler, you know, rush him from the side, grab the snake, And I could not have been happier when I heard Annie say, I think we got it. One of my favorite photographers to work with is a French photographer named Patrick Demachelier. He loves women, and he's fun, and he's fast. And I was doing a shoot with him in Hawaii, and they wanted to do some pictures with the surfers. And, you know, I was cool with that. Yeah, whatever, tell me what you want. Oh, well, we would like you to get on that surfer's shoulders. And I'm like... Okay, I can probably do that. I was wearing a gown and heels, by the way. And then they said, oh, but you're actually going to paddle out in the ocean with him on the surfboard. And once he starts surfing in, that's when we want you to climb on his shoulders. I was like, what? And then the editor told me not to get my hair wet. It's impossible. So as I'm trying to compute all these things they're asking me to do, I had a moment where I was like, I know how to get out of this. In my best dumb model voice, I'm like, you know what, Patrick? I don't understand what you're thinking about, but if you show me, I'm sure I could do it. Needless to say, we did the shot standing on the sand. Former valedictorian and longtime supermodel Cindy Crawford. Her new memoir is called The Coming. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Rico, one of my favorite words that is not really a word is plonk. Mm, The act of falling into an easy chair. I do love no, it, so. although that's nice, too. I like it, to do that. Plonk is Brit and Aussie slang for bad wine. Okay. So as in to plonk down with some plonk, one could that's do. That's right. That sounds fun. <laughs> I like to do that, too. Anyway, a new mini-documentary called Corkscrewed, The Art of Fake Wine, looks at people who replace fancy wine with plonk and sell it for lots of money. Counterfeit wine. We were talking about. That's right. How dare they? Earlier this week, I spoke with Christine Honey, the investigative producer of the movie, and I asked her how much fake wine is there in the world? Yes, we know that in the high-end market, there's still a heck of a lot of wine out there that can be in the hundreds of millions of dollars that's fake. In places like China, one out of every two bottles is fake. And we know that how? We know that because we spoke with a French-appointed government official Mm. who went, he made several trips kind of investigating the prevalence of fake wine in China. And it's gotten so bad in China that basically some retailers will stay away from all fancy brands of of wine because they have too many concerns that they're actually selling fakes. I love the idea of a wine detective. Yes. It's kind (laughs) of great to talk to these sources about how they have been able to track down fake wines. Uh, We spoke with one 
guy whose wife figured out from the accents on the bottles that they Mm. were fake and not fake. I mean, there's some like wonderfully bad fake wines out there where someone told me about one bottle that just said like Bordeaux, Burgundy, France and wine (laughs) on the label and thought someone in China would buy that. Yeah. But then there are these... Those are different regions for people who don't know. Yes. It's impossible to be a Bordeaux and Burgundy. Right, right. So you're talking about these French fakes. There's a couple types of fraud happening here. Can you talk about the different sorts of things happening? Yes, there's the very high-end fake wine happening, and that is you take, you know, a bottle of Tupac Chuck and you put a fancier label on it and sell it for thousands upon thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. And then also one thing that's happening in China is that you have things that aren't wine at all. You have things that might be colored water. You might have things that are dangerous. Mm. Um, And that's the area that... it's kind of alarming that wine is kind of treading into these fake wines that have nothing like wine in the bottle. That could be like bottle. a health hazard. Yeah. There can be kind of long-term consequences by having a fake bottle of wine. So let's talk about the character who kind of helped bring this to the world's attention. Tell me about Rudy Kurniawan. Uh, and how he kind of cracked into the wine world and what he did. Rudy Kurniawan was this kind of larger-than-life um, Indonesian-born student who dis- had a great bottle of wine at his, he said, at his father's birthday dinner in San Francisco. It was actually a bottle of Opus One, and he was known for having this incredible palate, and he started um, having these wine dinners and hosting his new kind of friends for wine, and a lot of the bottles ended up being fake, like hundreds of millions of dollars being fake. So he entered this kind of elite wine society and ingratiated himself by saying, oh, I have this bottle of, you know, Chateau Lafitte from a very nice year, and more often than not, it was fake wine. Yeah, there was a mix of fake and real wine. So you never kind of knew if you're, he was giving you a fake wine or a real wine. And yeah. he definitely had a lot of real wines to kind of get entrance into the club. Mm. And he was able to kind of pass himself off very well. And he made millions upon millions of dollars from this. Because you know, he, he would sell lots of wine. Yes, he sold um, he sold quite a bit of wine through um, Acker Merrill and Condit, the uh, wine shop on Manhattan's Upper West Side, mm-hmm. and through Christie's. And he he was really kind of established in the wine world. He had critics and people were, who called him out for many years, but he was really at the top of the wine world. So Rudy is now not serving wine. He's serving, I guess, bug juice. Like, he, he's in prison. He's <laughs> Rudy probably... is in prison, yes. <laughs> well, how did, what happened to him? Well, he kind of made some missteps, and he sold enough fake wine that the uh, federal agents showed up at his house in California, and they found he really had, like, a fake wine-making factory in mm. his home. And so they just had more than enough evidence to to convict him on this, and he is serving his time. One of the details I found interesting was that there were recipes for how to make, like, a fancy Rothschild wine. Yes. Right? It was, like, a little bit of Californian wine, a little bit of uh, oxidized old Bordeaux. So in a way, he was trying to approximate the, the flavors of these uh, classic wines. If you're that good at mixing wines, why don't you just make real wine? Yeah. But he did fabricate the kind of finest burgundies you could ever purchase. So I guess in that sense, there's more money for in that. Yeah. And also, you know, you don't spend a lot of prison time for the amount of money you make. So from the eyes of a criminal... Wine fraud is a good way to go. It's mm. better than drug dealing, you know. It's... Is it better than hosting a public radio show? <laughs> <laughs> the you can make 
quite a bit of money in selling fake wine. And the most of government prosecutors don't have the resources to go after wine fraud. So what are the odds for someone who, you know, goes to the wine store, maybe buys a couple $15 bottles of wine a week, that it's going to be fraud? The odds are unlikely that it will be fraud. But that's not the case in China, and that's not the case for the future. So your suggestion is beer? (laughs) Christine Hani is the investigative producer behind Corkscrew, The Art of Fake Wine, and you can find a link to the doc at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, stick around for etiquette advice from Sir Ian McKellen and more when The Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear a new tune from New Zealand's Nadia Reed, and we learn about the book that turned Alfred Hitchcock into an artist. Mm. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and for answers, we turn once again to Sir Ian McKellen. All right. He's one of the great thespians of our time and star of the Lord of the Rings and X-Men films. He's also an activist and standard bearer for gay rights. And he stars as Sherlock Holmes in the new movie, Mr. Holmes. Sir Ian, we told folks you would be here. Are you ready for their questions? I am. All right. Here's something from Joe in Dublin, Ireland. Joe writes, in a theater, when shuffling sideways down a tight row of seats, should we face away from those who are seated or face towards them? Mm. Yes, well, you have two problems. You have to attend to the person sitting down or maybe standing up to let you go by and the person in the row in front. So who's coiffure you don't want to upset. So um, my suggestion is go sideways... Mm. Present your uh, rear view to the person sitting in the second row so that you can attend to the person sitting in front of you. Because if you were the other way around, which might seem to be more polite to the person sitting down, you might be banging the row in front. So With your butt. The, the, the golden rule is face the stage. All right. Mm. Now we know. Now there's an official answer to that. It's from a pro. So this next question comes from Daniel in Boston. And Daniel writes, as the most perfect speaker of the most perfect English on the planet, I believe that's you. Steady on. <laughs> what's the politest way to correct others' pronunciation? Oh, never, never correct anyone's pronunciation. Really? Mm. No, no, I mean, you can, you can do it if a name comes up in the script and all the actors have to agree on how it's pronounced. But no, in real life, no, no, no. So if, if someone calls me Jan McKellen or even Jan yeah. McKellen, which is an unfortunate name for an actor, I <laughs> would accept it. Does that happen? People mispronounce your name? Well, particularly at Buckingham Palace when they're giving you a knighthood. Yes, I've discovered. <laughs> I was announced as Mr. Jan McClellan. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Sir Jan. Well, and I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't correct Her Majesty. There you go. Two pieces of advice, Daniel. Do not correct someone's pronunciation and do not correct Her Majesty. <laughs> there you go. Here's something from J.R. in Virginia. J.R. writes, under any circumstances, is it okay to ask a performer to say one of his or her most noteworthy lines? You shall not pass comes to mind. Mm. Well, uh, I'd rather you didn't ask me. Uh, Mm. I'll decide whether I'm going to speak that line out of context. You know, I'm not a stand-up comic who has a a a funny catchphrase. I've always thought it would be nice to have your own music, so that when you walked out onto a stage, <laughs> your theme tune was played. Oh, I like it. No, yeah. no thanks for the memory. You know? <laughs> not, not so easy if you're playing Macbeth, though. Uh, no, quite. Well, I don't know what the song would be. Um, 
What's the question? <laughs> he said, is it okay to ask a performer to say one of their noteworthy lines? No, and- it isn't okay. No, it isn't. No, nor is it okay to take his photograph without asking first, which on the whole people do. All right, there you go, right. JR. This next question comes from Alf in Los Angeles, and Alf writes, if you, Sir Ian, were to marry another fellow, how would you address your significant other? The wife of a knight is referred to as lady, but what is the gay married version of that? Well, I know that's a very, very good question, and, and, and it'll have to be answered. I mean, men refer to their husbands, and, and women, mm-hmm. lesbians refer to their wives. Mm-hmm. Sure. That's okay. I, I, I think if you're a sir, mm-hmm. Sir Ian, the other chap could be a consort. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Doesn't that result in a power imbalance? It feels like if you're calling your significant other a consort. Well, with regard to your title, yes, because the title is yours. That's true. But, I mean, I'll, I don't use my title uh, uh, if I can avoid it. So I think if I had a husband, I'd call him sweetheart or love or the love of my life. and. Oh. Um, Darling. Darling, yes, exactly. Th- those are all appropriate names. All right. All Unless right. you're angry, at which case he becomes consort. Consort, okay. And here's something from <laughs> Megan, El Paso, Texas. Oh, I hate this. What do you do when you have to work with someone, she asks, who is pushy and who voices their opinion and comments on every topic? Uh, well, you, you've got to be very careful uh, when you're working with someone not to tell them what you think about them. Of course you're observing them. But as my favorite director says to me, Ian, will you stop bothering about other people's performances and get your own right first? And I, oh. I think that's what we should all really do. I've, you know what? You bring up an interesting question. You were talking about the director will give you that note. Is it difficult, having been in so many movies, working with like a young director? Well, you, th- you, uh, you can learn an awful lot from people who are younger than you and less experienced. Hmm. Sometimes by their mistakes, but mm. you know, when I was watching uh, Martin Freeman up close playing uh, The Hobbit, mm. I just marveled at his facility. What did you learn from Martin, do you think? Well, I learned from Martin never to do it quite the same each time uh, on, on each different take and, and to genuinely believe you were saying the thing for the first time. I mean, it sounds obvious, but he, he does that to such perfection. I see. He's, by the way, that thing I would learn from Martin Freeman is how to dress. That guy is a natty dresser. He is a natty dresser, isn't he? Yes, he tries to get me to go to his tailor. Not a chance, Martin. (laughs) Why not? Too natty for you? Yes, I don't want to look natty. I want to look glamorous and um, (laughs) want my clothes to flow, not constrict me. But you know what? I'm thinking of you. Do you remember uh, when you did the thing with Ricky Gervais in Extras? You're you're wearing a kind of a Hawaiian... Ricky Gervais? I've never heard of him. (laughs) Distancing yourself from him, are you? Uh, But you're kind of wearing a Hawaiian shirt in that, and you got like a kind of a coral necklace, and you seem very casual, very L.A., is that you? Well, it could be. I'm wearing a necklace as, as we speak. Can you hear it? Describe it for the folks. I don't know what it's made of. It, it could be papier-mâché painted and varnished, or it could be little <laughs> shells. All right. There you go, Meg. I think we answered your question somewhere in there. Yeah, we have one last question. We'll, we'll, we asked this of each of our guests. The question is, what's okay. the most memorable get-together you've been to? Well, when I was um, living in the Hollywood Hills in the early 90s, would it be making a Gods and Monsters an apt pupil for Brian Singer? I, yeah. I invited to supper uh, Susan Sarandon, uh-huh. David Hockney, the painter, wow. yes, and, and Gore Vidal, wow. and oh my goodness, and his partner. Yes. And I cooked for them the two things that I cooked best, and they didn't particularly go well together. One was a curry... And then an English trifle, which is a confection of uh, jello and custard and, and cream and fruit. Well, Gore ate 
an awful lot of this uh, food. Very gratifying <laughs> for the for the cook and host. Yes. And and the conversation was free-ranging and, and spirited. I mean, the, the, there were three, four gay men in the room and, 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 and one straight woman, and uh, that, that's quite a good combination for a happy party. But at the, uh, the, the next day, it was the, on my answering machine, telephone answering machine, there was a message which said, uh, Ian, this is Gore. Yesterday you supplied me with the most wonderful meal... I have ever eaten wow. in Hollywood. <laughs> in Hollywood. <laughs> Followed, may I say, by the most satisfactory bowel movement of my entire life. <laughs> Gore. Tell me you saved that. I wish I'd, I wish I'd kept No, oh, I didn't man. save it, but that's what he said, word for word. To have been God. a fly on that wall would have been genius. <laughs> thank you for sharing that memory with us. And thank you for telling your audience how to behave, Surya. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. The inimitable Sir Ian McKellen. His new film is called Mr. Holmes, and it's out now on DVD. And folks, if you have an etiquette mystery that needs solving, send it to 221B Baker Street or to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Back in 1966, at the height of his career, French filmmaker Francois Truffaut sat down with his hero, Alfred Hitchcock, and interviewed him about every film he'd ever made. That interview was transcribed into a book called Hitchcock Truffaut, and if you're a filmmaker, you've probably read it. Now, there's a documentary about the making of that book and about the impact it had on directors like Martin Scorsese and Wes Anderson, both of whom appear in the film. It's called Hitchcock Truffaut, makes sense, and it's directed by Kent Jones. When I spoke to Jones this week, I asked when he first encountered the book. Well, you know, in my movie, David Fincher talks about reading it as a boy and going over it again and again. And that was pretty much my experience, too. I was like 12, and I don't remember whether I bought it or whether somebody gave it to me, but it was something that I had with me at all times. It is interesting because I encountered it as a young person, too. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty heady book. Mm -hmm. for someone of that age. What what do you ascribe its draw to people of that age? It doesn't... Well, first of all, it's got a lot of pictures. <laughs> That's true, by Philippe Halsman, one of the great photographers. By Philippe Halsman, and also a lot of stills from movies. And so when you're that age, you know, if somebody says, hey, you should read a book, you'd be like, great, where are the pictures? <laughs> That's one thing, a lot of pictures. But also, I think it's not just Truffaut doing a book about Hitchcock. It's much more than that. He devoted as much time to this book as he did to, like, two movies. He really constructed something that moves like a movie. Mm. I think you, it's, a, it's a very unusual book in that way. You feel the interview moves like a narrative? Kind of? I do. The editing has been done for concision, rhythm, unity. It's got a pace that's quite different from a book-length interview between a critic and a filmmaker. You mentioned that it was edited. One of the things that I love about this film is that you actually hear outtakes from the original interview tapes of Hitchcock and Truffaut joking around. There's a point where Hitch is heard giving direction to Philippe Halsman about how to photograph them. What is your favorite of that stuff, the stuff that doesn't appear in the book? I loved, well, first of all, just the tone of the conversation is really different from the book. Hitchcock, he's much warmer than he appears to be in the book. That moment that you're talking about is when Halsman comes in and you know, they do the posed photographs. I love those moments. Now, here we are. Look, here's the angle. Now, I'm going to be like this, you see. Now, Mr. Truffaut should half turn around and look back to me. Regardez à moi. Otherwise, it, may, it might make us look like movie directors. And God forbid we ever look like that. 
at, at the beginning of the movie, there's a quote from Truffaut that when he would tell interviewers early on in his career that Hitchcock was his favorite filmmaker, everybody seemed mm-hmm. surprised. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Why were people surprised? Because in the United States, they were used to seeing him as like a master entertainer, the master of suspense. Hitchcock. Yeah. The guy who did cameos, the guy who could deliver shocks and thrills on a Saturday night, and, and then you'd forget it. So, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, he's your favorite director. You, Francois Truffaut, the man who made Jules and Jim. And so he decided, okay, I need to do a book. And he had a goal in mind, and that goal was to prove to people and show them, really, that Hitchcock was a great artist and that he was foundational to the art of cinema. Something we now all take for granted, of course. And actually, your your movie really kind of uses the book as a jumping point to discuss the movies of Hitchcock with the help of uh, interviews with a lot of filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And I was struck by how many of them have very strong memories or were very strongly influenced by Hitchcock's movie Psycho. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the thing about Psycho is that people know Psycho. They know the fact that, you know, what happens 35 minutes into the movie, the shower scene. But still, the shock of it when you're watching it remains, and that is that you are set up for something that is completely obliterated. Yeah. A woman steals money, she drives away, and you're just thinking about the money, and, you know, is she going to return the money? It's always there. What's yeah. she going to do? Is she going to return the money? And then suddenly, boom, that's all gone. Yes, she's, a spoiler alert, she's killed. It's, it's the first half yes. hour of the movie is setting up a story that cannot be paid off because she's exactly. killed. Exactly. That's right. And, you know, Peter Bogdanovich in my film describes the uncanny experience of sitting there and watching that movie for the first time without knowing what was going to happen. And he said the audience was just dumbfounded. And when that murder, that shower scene came, I've never seen an audience react like that. You could hear a sustained shriek from the audience downstairs. It wasn't like, ah, ah, ah. It was like, ah, like they wanted to close it out. They couldn't believe what happened. They kept thinking it couldn't have happened. She's going to be alive. It was every impulse that you have from going to movies. It was the first time that going to the movies was dangerous. And Scorsese implies that basically that set up all filmmaking of the 60s. Yeah, filmmaking of the 60s, but also setting the tone for the 60s and the shocks that were to come without knowing it. I mean, it's not like Hitchcock saying the 60s, I I sense that the 60s are going to be bad. I want to set up a movie that's going to prepare people for it. Mm. Not quite, but things are in the air. Things happen. You know, he was catching something. And I mean, the same year, Michelangelo Antonioni made La Ventura, and the heroine in that film disappears very early on, too. That's interesting, though, but, but suddenly it's, it's almost like filmmakers are aware that things are not as linear as they used to be. Well, things are impermanent and subject to just changing and being obliterated. And uh, Psycho really opened the door for a lot of things in movies. So you've delved into Truffaut's book. You've spoken to all these filmmakers. What do you think is the essence of what compels them all to return to Hitchcock's movies again and again? What is the power of these films? He's made movies that go so deep that they touch on things that are unnameable. The end of Vertigo, I I wouldn't even know how to characterize it. What starts maybe as a suspense movie uh, on paper becomes something very, very different. I mean, he goes where very few artists go, and I don't just mean movie makers. I mean, you know, all the arts. 
Kent Jones. His documentary is called Hitchcock Truffaut. And folks, that concludes this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download. Aww. But do not fret. You can hear hundreds more hours of our show for the price of free. Just subscribe to our podcast via iTunes and you'll never miss an episode. Plus, you'll hear bonus podcast-only episodes to boot. It's kind of the best bargain on the internet. This show would not be possible without producer Jackson Musker, associate producer Nina Patak, and associate digital producer Christina Lopez. Jeff Peters engineered. Our executive producer is Larissa Anderson. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Nadia Reed is a young New Zealand-based folk musician with an album called Listen to Formation, Look for Signs. Here's a track from it entitled Call the Days. Bon appetit. I have heard the mother's tongue. She said, baby, don't you come under. I'm so far from my home that heaven not hear my call. My own grave I am chasing shit beneath the haze I was so sure that he would stay And would love me anyway I was happy on my own I would call the days as they were known And in the guilt that I have found You know the one that sticks around I'm Brendan. I'm Rico. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. All right. Good show. Cheers. Ah! This isn't two-buck Chuck. You got me. It's 99-cent trend. Ah, you owe me a dollar one.